Well, good morning. Welcome. I'm, I'm glad to see all you here. Um, glad to uh, be part of uh, this series that we're doing called Desperate. And uh, we are now hitting the halfway point in our series. Um, so this morning we're, we're turning a little bit of a corner. Um, and we're, we're sort of heading in a, a new direction and, and starting to paint and frame um, some of what we're actually trying to accomplish through this series. And if you remember, I've, I, I've talked about it a few times. Really, my goal um, for the six weeks of this series is for us to be able to say with some clarity at some point in this series, uh, I realize that I'm not as desperate for God as I should be, but I want more. Um, so at some point in time, there needs to come a realization, I think, for all of us that, uh, that, that we uh, are lacking in the department of having desperation for God, and specifically for the presence of God in our lives. Because it's the presence of God when he shows up in our lives that sort of changes everything. Um, so we can have a lot of stuff in our lives, and we can have a lot of stuff from God, but more often than not, those are actually God's attempts to get us to realize that we're missing not stuff, but him. And so really what we're trying to do throughout this series is to figure out what it means to be desperate for him and not just the stuff that we get from him. Um, and if you uh, have been tracking along with us uh, the last couple weeks, what we've done is really ask the question, what are some of the things that stand in the way of us being able to be desperate for him? What are some of the things that we are already desperate on? And what are some of the, the things that sort of weigh us down as individuals in our lives that keep us from experiencing that kind of presence uh, with God? And so we've talked about both idols and sin and how those two things act against us. And so if you've missed any of those, our, our podcast is actually up to date now. So you can go online and, and sort of review and catch yourself up along the way. The big idea for this entire series is this. And I've, I've told you to write it down twice. And I'll tell you a third time. I may tell you a fourth, fifth, and sixth time just so that you're aware. A little preview of the rest of the series. God's presence is found most with those who are most desperate for him. God's presence is found most with those who are most desperate for him. So as our desperation for him increases, God has a way of revealing himself, showing himself to us in, in a unique way. And so as we are kind of turning a little bit of a corner for our series, um, we've looked at some things that stand in the way of us, sort of appreciating and understanding God. And this morning, we really want to ask kind of an interesting question. Uh, and that's this. How desperate is God for us? You may think, wait, what? I'm going I'm to ask it again. How desperate do you think God is for us? Uh, because, and the reason that we're sort of going in this direction is, uh, it's important for us to realize if we're going to have any sort of desperation for God's presence in our life, we need to know a little bit about the God who uh, we are trying to sort of cultivate a relationship with. And it turns out that God is incredibly desperate for you, for you, and for me, and for us as a church. Um, and I think that will change a lot. So I'm going to be kind of open-handed with you uh, this morning, um, I, and I, I was trying to be with our, our team as we were gathering and going over the service. There's only so much that I can say about this. The, 
there's really, I can sort of give you the basics of what it means for God to be present um, and, and for really for him to be desperate for us. Um, but there's only so far I can go before talking needs to end and experiencing needs to begin. And so I, I mentioned to the team that this morning would be a short message, and they said, is that even possible? And, uh, <laughs> and when I said that there's only so much I can say on the subject, people said, Really? You? <laughs> so let's see if I can hold, uh, hold to that, uh, that claim this morning. Uh, I'll, I'll sort of intro us in this direction, and it'll make sense as we go along, I promise. Um, if I'm being honest with my own life, my, myself, and, and kind of taking a look at me, and um, those who kind of know me the best would probably say this as well, if I'm not careful, I can be a pretty pessimistic person. Um, I, I can sort of reside in the half-glass-empty portion of people if I'm not careful. Um, and when I was young, uh, I would, the way that I would sort of perceive the world as having a lot to do with luck, um, and, and I, really I thought that I had the worst luck in the world. I, I just thought, you know, when bad stuff happens, more often than not it's going to happen to me, uh, when the short end of the stick is drawn, it's, it's coming in my direction. I just have terrible, terrible luck. And so this influenced the way that I saw the world, the way that I reacted to people and to situations in my life. And um, because of this, it was terrible to play miniature golf with me. <laughs> Nobody wanted to play miniature golf. We, my family would go on vacation to like a shore town, as many of you guys have been doing and, and will do the rest of the summer. And there are a lot of miniature golf places. And, and we would stay for a pretty long period of time, and you kind of run out of things to do before you go, okay, we just got to play miniature golf. And uh, so as the years sort of went on, and this kind of progressed in my own life, I noticed that my family wanted to play miniature golf less and less and less with me. And I'm thinking, what is up with this, right? I like playing miniature golf. I have a good time. Why don't you have a good time? And it turned, it turned out, I think it was my sister that finally had to break the news to me. She goes, you're a terrible loser. I said, what do you mean? And she goes, you always complain. Every time we go and play miniature golf, if it doesn't go your way, you complain and you put up a stink. And I said, that's because I have bad luck. Right? So if... if <laughs> You're doubting my, uh, the accuracy of the story already, I can tell. <laughs> if something would go well, I would attribute it fully to my own skill. Did you see that shot? That was an amazing shot. I banked it off both things through the clown's mouth into the hole, hole in one, so there, on you. Right? <laughs> but if it would bank in the wrong direction, or, God forbid, it wouldn't go through the clown's mouth, then it was entirely bad luck. It was a blade of grass. It was the wind. You know, my club isn't right. I need a new club. I need a new ball. Why did you look at me that way? You know, attributing it to all kinds of scenarios outside of my control. If something good happened, it was because I created it. If something bad happened, it was because it was done to me. Right? Um... So, let me ask this question. How many of you would consider yourself pessimists like me? 
Come on, be honest. I know you're out there. <laughs> All right, on the other side, how many of you would sort of consider yourself optimist? You're sort of glass half full. A lot of hands shoot up there, jerks. <laughs> <laughs> See, I'm a pessimist, so I can react to that just fine. <laughs> I blame it all on Myers-Briggs, actually. If I wasn't that personality type, you know. The reason this is relevant is because of this. The view that we often take of the world around us impacts the way that we view God. The, world, the way that we view the world around us translates into how we perceive and relate to our Heavenly Father. It has a tremendous impact. And so for me, when I, tra when I sort of chalked up bad experiences to bad luck, what I was saying in a sense is that my perception of God is that He is the dispenser of that bad luck. Right? If, it's all, if, if it all boils down to luck and my luck is bad, then I can kind of offload that reality onto God and say, God, it's actually your fault. And what I'm really saying about God is that, God, you are distant from me. You don't interact in my life. Um, if things are going well in my life, it's because I've created them. If they're going bad, it's because you've dispensed bad luck in my direction. And he sort of stepped away, hands off, and said, Let us, you know, let's see how it sort of plays out. Uh, A.W. Tozer has a great quote, and he says this. Were we able to extract from any man a complete answer to the question, what comes into your mind when you think about God? We might predict with certainty the future of that man. We might be able to predict the future of that man. I think that's a pretty true statement, because every time, every thought that you have of God isn't an isolated thought. It's related to how you view the world. And so the thoughts that you have about God translate into your future. You think certain things about God, that will translate into how you relate to him, and you will become the person of your thinking. So it's very important that we get sort of the right mindset about who God is and what he's about if we're going to understand anything about what it means to be desperate for his presence in our lives. Because if you're like me and you understand God is distant, then God sort of becomes that dispenser of luck, right? Things are going your way, maybe he's giving you good luck. If things aren't going your way, it's sort of bad luck. But in either scenario, God is kind of hands-off, and he's sort of letting things play out on a cosmic scale. He's distant. If, God is, if you see God as being distant and yet critical, then, then oftentimes God becomes a sort of disapproving judge in your life. And you need to live up to the expectations of this judge. Otherwise, things are going to go real bad for you. So it's not so much about luck, but it's about your gaining or not gaining approval of this sort of cosmic critic in the sky. On the other hand, God could be very active in your life, and you might see him as being a very authoritarian kind of a person. Somebody who is sort of an over-disciplining parent. That the moment you get out of line, you get smacked in the head, right? <laughs> so you and I, we might believe um, and claim to, profess to believe certain things about God. But what we profess isn't always what we actually believe. 
Sometimes we can profess God to be all-knowing and all-loving, always present in our lives. But the real test is how you respond when circumstances don't go your way. See, how you react in relationship to God is the test of how you see him acting in your life. So you need to see him rightly as he is, as he truly is, if you have any hope of reacting well when things don't go your way. The God that we read about in the Bible actually undoes a lot of these sort of pre-misconceptions about the notions of him being either distant or critical or authoritarian. There is a quality about God, and we're going to sort of unpack it in three statements, okay? So this is where where we're going. We're going to unpack it in three statements, this quality of God that's actually displayed throughout Scripture. If you were to read the Bible from Genesis all the way to the very end in Revelation, you would see this theme about the character of God pop up over and over and over again. It's actually in the very last chapter of, of the Bible, and it's in the in the third chapter of Genesis. It's an amazing theme that's woven all throughout it. And this attribute that, that, by the way, is completely unique to the God that we read about in the Bible will undo, it will literally demolish any lies that we've come up against that hold us captive to believing that God is anything less than this. But it's important for us to keep this quality in mind because the more that we lose sight of it, the more we start to think of God as critical, authoritarian, distant, and all those sort of shadows of what he really is. Um, and, and I'll explain it by starting this way. The reality is this. God pursues you. God pursues you. He isn't just available to you. He pursues you. This is the quality of God that we see throughout the entire Bible. God is a pursuer of people. Not just people generally, but you. And it's displayed in actually one of uh, the most famous parables of Jesus. You've probably heard this before in Luke 15. And uh, there's three parables that he talks about in that passage. And we're going to highlight one but it's true of all three of these. Uh, Jesus says this, Suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. In the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. What do you notice about this this woman? Let's talk about some qualities that she has. She's lost something, right? Something of great value to her. Now you think, okay, ten coins, you lose one, what's the big deal? Uh, In all likelihood, these coins represented her entire inheritance. So you lose, I mean, a lot of you have have, uh, watched the stock market this week and sort of seen the volatility and everything that's going on, some of the biggest loss since 2008. Uh, and, and many of you have stock portfolios, and you're looking at those and wondering if you're going to be able to retire or not. That's exactly what she's going through. She's watching these ten coins, and now all of a sudden there's nine 
And she is freaking out about it. Not only does she freak out about it, but she goes in search of it. She says, I can't sit still and just let this happen to me. I need to go and do everything I can to find this lost coin. So she lights a lamp. She sweeps the house. She searches carefully. When? Until she finds it. This is an amazing parable because what it says about God is that he pursues you in the same way that this woman pursues her lost coin. Now you think, okay, well then why would God pursue me? It's actually right in the text. It's because that God sees you and me, his people, as his inheritance. The Bible numerous times talks about us as being the children of God, right? We are his inheritance. And in the same way that it would freak this woman out that she lost part of her inheritance, God says about us, when we are lost, I need to find what was lost. I need to pursue it. And the reality then that Jesus paints for us is that he tells you, I tell you there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So one person realizes how lost they are. God has pursued them to the point where they see who he is. They turn themselves around. And when that happens, God gathers all the angels in heaven, if even just for a moment, and says, let's celebrate. Throw up the banner. Get out the cake. Bring out the pool. We're having a party. It's easy for us to think about this generally, but apply this to you. That at one point in time, if you've come to know Jesus, there was a banner in heaven with your name on it. That all of heaven stopped, if only for a moment, and rejoiced over the fact that you and Jesus finally connected. How amazing is that? It becomes even more amazing when you realize that God had been in pursuit of you all the days of your life. Right? It's an amazing truth. And it would be amazing all by itself if not for this. God doesn't just pursue you. God pursues you even when you reject him. In other words, he doesn't let your rejection of him stop you from his pursuit. There's an amazing passage in Isaiah 65. I thank Pete for bringing it to my attention this week. It says, I revealed myself. This is God speaking to his people. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. To a nation that did not call my name, I said, here I am. Here I am. All day long, I love this phrase, all day long I have held out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations. Ouch, huh? In other words, there, there are figments of our imagination that we often pursue in place of God, thinking in reality that it's God, but actually, in reality, it's a lesser God. So that might mean that you think God is sort of the dispenser of luck and being pessimistic, it may mean that you think of God as being authoritarian or critical or any number of these shadows of who God actually is. And what he's saying is, while you're pursuing all these imaginations about who I might be, I'm standing there holding out my hand all day long, calling out to you, here I am, here I am, just come to me. 
God is present. Not only is he present, but he pursues you even when you reject him. The third thing is this. God pursues you even though you reject him, but he also pursues you until you're fully his. And I think this is the most amazing point for me. Um, There is a wonderful word in Hebrew. And I remember this back in seminary looking at this. Um, This is an amazing truth. There is a word called radah. Can you say that with me? Radah. Let's try it one more time. Radah. Um, 142 times the word radah in the Old Testament is used for this, to hunt after with hostile intent. So you see this constantly throughout the Old Testament. Every time the word pursue, seek, chase, hunt, all of these things pop up. More often than not, actually almost every instance of it is someone chasing after somebody because they want to kill them. So this happens constantly throughout Scripture. You're like, where in the world is Jay going with this illustration? (laughs) But you see this all the time. The person who uses this word the most, can you guess who it is? It's a guy named David. Who, in, in his youth, was anointed to be the next king of Israel. But there was a problem. There was a current king of Israel. And he wasn't too happy that God had put his hand on David to be the next king. And so he spent the remainder of his life trying to hunt David down all the days of his life. He pursued him, chased him, hunted him. David's running from, from this guy because he has nothing but malintent for him. And, and it's interesting because we've, we've already talked about Psalm 142 here. It's kind of the, the theme verse of our entire series. And the word radaf appears in that verse. And so let's look at that together. We know this part. Listen to my cry, for I am in desperate need. Here's the second half of that verse. Rescue me from those who redoth me. Rescue me from those who pursue me, for they are too strong for me. Why were they pursuing David? Because they wanted to kill him. The word redoth means to have your full way with your with the person you're you're pursuing. The previous king of Israel wanted nothing more than to completely get rid of David. He had intentions for David, and he intended to make those intentions fully realized in David's life by literally ending it. Do you know the one place in the entire Bible where the word radah is used in a positive sense? You probably don't, so we'll look at it together. A very familiar passage in the last verse of Psalm 23. It says this, Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. Surely goodness and love will redoff me, pursue me, hunt me down all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Those two qualities, goodness and love, are, are sort of manifestations of God himself, right? The entire psalm talks about God as being a shepherd who chases after his sheep because he loves them and because he wants goodness and mercy for them. Here's the reality. 
God wants to hunt you down with his goodness and love all the days of your life until he has his full way with you. Pretty amazing picture, isn't it? It kind of changes the way that we perceive God. God has an intention for you. And that intention is to overwhelm you with his goodness and love. And he is willing to do it every single day of your life until you relent. He wants to pursue you until you're fully his. Um, I've been taking care of Caleb quite a bit the last uh, few days. And there's one thing that I, I love but my dog hates. And that uh, Caleb loves to chase our dog around because he's infatuated with the collar on him and particularly his license. And so everywhere Riley goes, he he gets up and moves to a different location in the house and Caleb (laughs) will literally hunt him down no matter where he goes. So... And, and now he's so, he's so mobile, and I've got baby gates up, so Riley can't get anywhere. <laughs> so, so he gets up and moves and goes towards the stairs, and Caleb follows him. Once he gets there, Riley gets up, goes, moves to, to, more towards the kitchen. Caleb follows him. He gets up, moves, goes towards the front door. Caleb follows him. <laughs> he, this will go on all day if I don't, st- if I don't intercede, right? He is hunting him down because he wants what Riley has. (laughs) See, if we we understand God is distant, then, to be honest, it doesn't matter if you spend any time with him. It it doesn't matter if if, uh, you devote yourself to him, if you give him more of yourself, um, because the truth of the matter is he wouldn't really care anyhow, right? If he's distant and aloof, then it really doesn't matter. You can spend your time however you like. If God is critical, then my relationship to him becomes somewhat of a balancing act of trying to earn approval. And so I might claim that I'm desperate for him and try to spend time with him, but I'm only doing so really because I think that he might disapprove of me if I don't. If I think of God as sort of the authoritarian thumb-on-my-back kind of God, uh, then I'm really just trying to stay on God's good terms by spending time with him. I'm not really desperate for him. All I'm desperate for is the lack of punishment. But if we understand as God is our pursuer who literally stalks us all the days of our life, not to do harm, but to provide us with goodness and love, then that changes everything, doesn't it? Because now God is a patient waiter for me. And when I spend time with him, I'm really spending time with the one who's been pursuing me all day long. I'm really just stopping and saying, okay, God, I know that you've been with me this whole time. I'm here with you. We can do this in worship. We can do this in prayer. We can do this in our Bible reading. But it's important to remember this if we're going to have any hope of turning this corner and going from desperation on other things to desperation on him. so often we get caught up in our own efforts and our own attempts to seek after God. But how often have you stopped? Just stopped. 
started to realize how much God is pursuing you. See, this is why there's sort of a lack of words to be able to express this. Because I can only tell you so much. At some point, the talking has to end, and the singing, praying, and enjoying the presence of God needs to begin, doesn't it? I can only do so much to sort of convey this. And once I do, it's really up to us as a community to experience it together, correct? If we miss out on that and it's just about talk, then we're really not spending time in his presence. It's important for him to be able to meet us there. And if you realize it, it's, it's really the, the story of the entire Bible. God created you. In Genesis it said that we walked away from him. And ever since Genesis 3, God has been coming up with new ways to hunt us down throughout the entire rest of the Bible. And the means that he is successful in pursuing us is when Jesus comes down to this earth and does it physically on this earth. But he doesn't just leave and, and, and leave us to our own devices, right? He says, I'm going to provide you a spirit who will be my presence with you because I'm with you forever. It is that spirit that we still have today. It is that spirit that continues throughout all the days of our life to hunt us down, no matter where we should go, no matter how many times we reject him. So I want to do something, I don't know if it's different, but hopefully it'll be uh, appropriate. I want you to close your eyes for a second. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to imagine the days of your life. Picture significant moments in your life. You may have to go back a long way. I don't know. (laughs) Significant times in your life. Some of you might be, I don't know, picturing a great vacation with your parents. You may be thinking of some great times when you were in school with some friends. You might be thinking about college and, and uh, some of the great experiences that you had there. Many of you might be thinking about your wedding day. I'm thinking about the day that my son was born. Here's what I want you to understand. Those pictures that you have in your mind right now, Each one is an attempt of God to pursue you with his love and his grace and his mercy. God says, my grace is sufficient for you. And even as you're imagining those moments in your life, picture the God behind them who's doing everything to convey to you how much he loves you and how present he wants to be in your life. An amazing thought. Just can open your eyes. See, if we're thinking about it, um, if God really is pursuing us, then it changes the way that we spend time with him because it's not just about our pursuits to spend time with him. It's a relationship. And we realize that God has done more in our life to bring us to the point where we're willing to spend time with him than we've ever done for him. And when we think about this correctly and we understand that God's been pursuing us, it frees us up 
to go and pursue other people with his love, doesn't it? Because now we understand that God loves others and pursues them. And when we know that we've been pursued by God, we want nothing more than to be used as his instrument to go and share that kind of love and grace with other people. It's just like if you've been forgiven of a lot of stuff in your life, you're willing to forgive a whole lot in other people's lives. It works the same way. Think of the story of our church. God has been pursuing this group of people, literally hunting us down for a very long time, hasn't he? I like to say that it's written into our DNA. Because if it were just about us and what we did and how well we performed and all of that, how well we gained his approval, I don't think we'd be here right now. In fact, I know we wouldn't. But all throughout the way, even in our stumbling, God has used every circumstances, both good and bad, to hunt us down, to literally redoff us until he has his full way with us. See, being desperate for God, it actually has little to do with our own efforts, if I'm going to be perfectly honest. It has a lot to do with experiencing God's pursuit of us. So, let's try to get a sense of that, right, as we pray and as we worship. Father, we thank you, God, this morning that you've provided us this opportunity to know a little bit more about you. I pray for those of us who've maybe been a little bit pessimistic, maybe sometimes doubt that you love us, and say to ourselves, sure, you love me, but you love everybody. God, I pray that you would bring not just a knowledge, but an experience so that we would know for certain in our bones, in our heart, in our gut that you love us, that you pursue us, that even when we're resistant to you, you track us down. And it's your desire to have your full way with your people. And so God, make it our desire now to be open to your movement here in our own lives. Let us respond well to you and understand just how much you love us. Let us respond just a a fraction, God, of what you've already provided in our lives. We ask it for Christ's name and his glory. Amen.